Buenos días a todos que hablan español, hermanos. Gracias por su presencia aquí hoy. Es una gran bendición para todos nosotros. Su presencia en nuestra diócesis, en nuestra iglesia, es una gran bendición. Eres, son ustedes una parte muy importante de la comunidad, de la familia de Cristo aquí en Colombia. Quiero... Uh, Quiero saludarte y dar gracias por su presencia, pero tenemos también traducción, sí, traducción en español. Hay las um, cosas mecánicas para ayudarles en detrás, ¿Mm? en vacío, ¿ok? Hay, hay uh, mecánicos para ayudarle en la traducción. Gracias por venir hoy. Son muy, pero muy importante. Y gracias a los que hacen la traducción también. I was just inviting, first of all, I was welcoming our Spanish-speaking brothers who are here today, saying how important we are all together, one family in Jesus Christ, right? Somos una familia en Jesús, ¿no? Sí. And reminding everyone um, that we do have the translation services, the trans and we have the devices for the translation, and that's in the back of the hall, so uh, that's what I was explaining. So, okay, good. Good morning. I am so glad you're here and early on a Saturday morning, and I get prime time. I get to speak to you not quite at eight o'clock in the morning where we're just kind of getting up here, right? And not quite in the afternoon where it's a little bit hard to stay awake. So I've got you right in the middle here. Thank you very much for this prime time spot. Now, you've been very, very kind to me. You've been very kind all along since I've arrived, but even today. And your applause, your welcome has been great. Using the virtues, I had a seminary professor who taught us to put these kinds of things into perspective. So they, this professor said, when you receive applause at the beginning of a talk, that is faith. When there's a little bit of applause partway through the talk, that's hope. And since we're talking about the virtues, you know where I'm going, right? When you get to the end and they applaud, that's charity. <laughs> there's faith. There's faith for you. So, I've been asked to talk a little bit about recognizing virtue, building virtue, and living virtue. What I'd like to do, though, is put it into the, a biblical context, if you would go with me on this biblical journey. I want to start with one of the Beatitudes, and you know it well. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure of heart. That Beatitude means exactly what it says. It's pretty simple. Blessed are the pure of heart. Clean hearts, morally upright hearts. Chaste hearts, right? All of those things that are so important to our clean living. But it, all, it goes a layer deeper because the verse is really translated as you go down deep into its meaning. The single-hearted, sometimes it's even translated the single-hearted. The pure heart is an undivided heart. A heart that is totally focused on God, totally focused on our love of God, our relationship with God. And then everything else falls into place, right? So when we talk about a masculine spirituality, and I'm going to be talking a little bit about leadership 
That's part of this spirituality. There's also a feminine spirituality of leadership that is very important as well, very gifted. And again, it's that beautiful complementarity of the male um, leadership and the female leadership that really creates this beautiful world, this image of God so present among us. Blessed are the pure of heart. We are called, all of us, to be leaders, to be fathers in one way or another. Some of us are real fathers of children, leaders in their families. Some of us are fathers in a spiritual way as priests, as religious. We're called to shepherd, to lead, to guide in that leadership way. Some of us are called in the single life to be leaders in a community, to be lights in a world of darkness. And I'm so glad for the presence of so many young people who are here today because God is calling you into leadership roles, not just in the future as you choose and live out your vocation, but even now, again, as shining stars in a world that can be so very, very dark. Permit me to begin with a couple of words of thanksgiving. Father Dennis Kigosi and the people of Resurrection Parish, you have been sponsoring us and we are so incredibly grateful. Thank you. When I came in, I encountered some of our young men representing not only Resurrection Parish, but also each of our diocesan high schools We are so proud of you. Thank you very, very much. And in a particular way to all the organizers, all the workers who are here today, in so many ways you're helping us, the vendors, our speakers. We are blessed indeed, are we not? So thank you one and all. So... Let me take you on this biblical journey, keeping in mind that beatitude of blessed be the pure of heart. You know the story of Israel in the Old Testament, how for years after being freed from slavery, they were led by judges, leaders in the community. But they always had their eyes focused on God. Sometimes they wandered away, but the leaders would try to bring them back. They wanted a king. They wanted to be like the rest of the nations. And God says, you don't really want a king because... A king is going to bring some of his own will into mess things up. And they said, we still want a king. And so God gave them kings, right? God gave them kings. So let me focus on two of those kings, two of the leaders of the community, uh, the nation of Israel and of Judah and of the 12 tribes of Israel. Two of these kings, David and Solomon, father and son, great, great men who did amazing things for God. Am I right? Great, great men. They did amazing things for God. David rallied the troops together. David united a nation. David founded the city of Jerusalem. And people flocked to around the holy city of Jerusalem. Remember, he wanted to build a temple, and God said, not your job, somebody else's. Your son will do that, right? But David did great, great things. However, unfortunately, David's heart was divided. David's heart was divided. You know the story, right? You see, basically, both David and Solomon run into chapter 11. I don't mean bankruptcy. (laughs) Go to chapter 11 of the second book of Samuel and go to chapter 11 of 
the first book of Kings, and you will see the downward spiral. Chapter 11, book of Samuel, second book of Samuel, David. It was the time of the year when kings go out into battle. The kings go out with their armies to protect their lands, to care for their people, right? It has a little bit of a warring kind of a scenario about it to fight the battles. But you know what? David, it's the time of the year to go out to battle. And we find out that David is on the roof of his hacienda getting a little bit of vitamin D. You know what I mean, right? He sent the armies out. He said, I've been pretty successful. I've been doing this a long time. I can take a little bit of a rest. They'll do the work. Mistake number one. He was abdicating his responsibility. Mistake number two. We're told he has his lunch. He takes his little siesta, a little afternoon nap, right? And we hear that it was now the early evening. Wow, what a sleep. What is he doing? All afternoon asleep. And what does he do? He starts looking out at his city. And he comes across Bathsheba. And we know the story from there. David's divided heart led to one mistake after another. That ended up hurting the nation. Hurting his own people. He had Bathsheba's husband killed in battle. Set up to be killed in battle. To cover his own sin. Right? The divided heart leads others astray. That's what happened in the book of Samuel. His son Solomon. Solomon, another great, great leader. Remember the story of Solomon? God says to Solomon, ask for anything you want. Anything at all. You can have whatever you want. And you know what Solomon asked for? He asked for? Not quite. (laughs) Not quite. You're right. that's That's the answer that we give. But if you look in the Bible, he asked for it. A listening heart, an understanding heart, which translated into wisdom. He asked for a listening heart. And God gave him a listening heart. And God gave him all kinds of things as well. God gave him riches. He made him very successful. He built, Solomon built that temple. And it was a sight to behold. And people's hearts were filled with joy as they found a place where God dwelt among them. God dwelt among them through his word in the covenant. Solomon did a wonderful job, but this is where his heart gets divided. This is what brings him to chapter 11. The first thing is, Solomon does such a good job that nobody is more impressive with what Solomon did than Solomon himself. You know what I mean? The divided heart. Wow, look at me. (laughs) Look at what I accomplished here. Then, what does Solomon do? He starts, he says... He accomplishes great things, but he does it on the backs of his own people, almost like slave labor. His success depended on everybody else's hard work, but not just their hard work, let's be unified in a mission, but really breaking their backs. That didn't work out so well. And then, chapter 11. Chapter 11 tells us about, now listen to this, Solomon and his 700 wives. And 300 concubines. Imagine the anniversaries he had to remember. <laughs> Interestingly enough, the Bible doesn't seem to have a great problem with that. All right? We're, we're talking about an evolution of morality here, coming to, to understand God's will, right? 
But the point that the Bible had the problem with is that he married the king, he married the daughter of the king of Egypt. He married the daughters of different leaders of other nations around them, pagan leaders. And they were turning Solomon's hearts to false gods. Solomon again said, oh, look at how all these women are adoring me. I'll throw some sacrifices the ways of their gods. And you know what happened? God told Solomon, out of respect for your father David, I'm not going to do it in your lifetime, but this kingdom is going to be divided. And that divided kingdom tore people apart and eventually led to the Babylonian captivity and then led from one disaster into another, into another. When the heart of the king is divided, the people of the nation suffer. Right? So, leadership in the Old Testament is is divided as kingship. And Jason said it so well. We, through our baptism, we are called, like Christ, into the roles of priest, prophet, and king. Into roles of leadership. Leadership by example and by service. And so, what does the Bible call for all of us but those pure hearts, those undivided hearts? Right? That's where the virtues come in to help us to find pure hearts, live pure hearts and holy hearts, undivided hearts. Now, when our hearts become divided, as fathers in families, as individuals, as priests and bishops, when our hearts become divided, the people we're supposed to be serving end up suffering. Isn't that true? We see generations and generations of hurt people. Maybe some of us in this room, people who are hurt by divided hearts. Indeed. When the heart of the leader is divided, the people under his care end up suffering the most. And so what do we have here through, as we try to recognize and live and build virtue, but this attempt really to be single-hearted? What David and Solomon ended up doing is that they conflated their own will into what was good for the people, into God's will. They, their divided hearts led them to believe, led them to believe that it was okay to take care of themselves a little bit. And that really what I'm doing is what God really wants. That illusion has stayed with us from generation to generation. But can I give you another view, please? Can I give you another view? Because God has his own version. God has his own view of leadership, of kingship. In fact, when God talks about his leadership, he changes the vocabulary a little bit. God prefers to speak not of kings, but of shepherds. When God criticizes the kings and the earthly leaders of the people of Israel and of the different tribes, God looks at them and he says, man, oh man, have they messed this up, right? In the book of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel is great. In the book of Ezekiel, God kind of has it, right? Up to here. He says, I've trusted leadership to these people and they've messed it up. I'm going to put a little Brooklyn into this, okay? Forget about it. Forget about it. I've had it, God says. I will shepherd my own people. All right, you read the book of Ezekiel and there's this, all this very romantic, beautiful language about how I will shepherd my people. I will bind up their wounds. I will take them back. God wasn't being romantic there. God was pretty ticked off. And he basically says, I've had it. I'm going to do it my way. I will shepherd 
my people. Shepherd. Shepherding has a different ring to it, doesn't it? It has that sense of tenderness, that sense of care. We read in the Gospels about the, the tenderness of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who comes among us, who lays down his own life for the sheep. I want to go to the 23rd Psalm. Even David, the king, who was a good king but with a divided heart, David knew this. He looks at, and we hear that Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, there is nothing I lack. In green pastures he makes me lie down. To still waters he leads me. He restores my soul. He guides me along the right path for the sake of his name. Even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You set a table before me in the sight of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Indeed, goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord for years to come. You see, God comes to live among us as a shepherd and a king. God comes himself. He comes himself to live among us as a shepherd and a king. We call him... We call him... Jesus. We call him Jesus, right? We call him Jesus. God has come to live among us. To, God has come to, to restore his temple. The king has come himself to pick up, to, to claim his throne once again. But the language he uses is the language of the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me. I am the good shepherd. I will seek out the one who was lost and carry him over my shoulder. Right? I am the good shepherd. I will lay for That's a different kind of leadership, isn't it? That's a different kind of leadership. God's form of leadership is very, very, very different. Let me use another example in here. St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. God, Jesus, God chose to become king. God chose to become shepherd by humility, by self-emptying love. We think of kingship. We think even of God. We think of mighty, all-powerful, total rights, whatever we want, Right? We think of kingship in that language. That's what David did a little bit. That's what Solomon did a little bit. That's what all their sons and grandsons and great-grandsons did, right? But God, if you really want to know what God is like, God is about self-emptying love. The Greek word is kenosis. God is about self-emptying love. What did God want to do? And and St. Paul says, this is what we have to do. He starts off by saying, put on the attitude of Jesus Christ. Put on the attitude of Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at, but rather he emptied himself, coming among us in human estate. He was known, for, he was known to be human likeness and coming in our appearance. He humbled himself. He humbled himself, obediently accepting even death. And death on a cross. It was thus that because of this, God greatly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend 
of those in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue proclaim to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus came not to grab power. Jesus came. It is God truly, the true shepherd, the true king, comes to live among us. He does it, first of all, by one act of self-emptying love. Stepping off the throne of heaven, right? And stepping into our messy world, right? This is the kind of leadership that God is designing. And friends, this is the kind of leadership to which God calls each and every one of us. Paul doesn't just tell us that story so that we can admire Jesus from afar. Absolutely, we have to kneel down and worship the Lord. But Paul is telling us this because he starts off by saying, your attitude must be that of Jesus Christ. Your attitude. This is Christian leadership. This is Christian fatherhood. This is Catholic priesthood, being a bishop. Again, we've seen in the church, we've seen in our families, we've seen in society what happens when our hearts become divided. And that's a shame. That's an awful shame. But what we also see is God comes not only to save us, but to teach us, to give us a different model, a very different model. So, what does this mean for us as fathers, priests, leaders in the community, young people discerning a vocation? Indeed, we want to become single-hearted, following Jesus Christ. We want to be like God. You know, we talk about the virtues, and Fred went through the virtues. I know they're in your book. I'm going to use the catechism a little bit to talk about these virtues. All right? The four human virtues. Four human virtues. Prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. Prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. These virtues are human. In other words, these are things that we need to develop within ourselves. The virtues of justice and prudence, of temperance and fortitude, they come to us through habits. They come to us as we recognize them in other people, people to whom we look up. They come to us in our desires to live good lives. And it's not that I just become a man of justice. It's that I practice every day little acts of justice, seeking what is right, seeking what is good. That's what leads to a pure heart. It's, a, it's the long, hard slog of trying to do things correctly, trying to treat people ag- appropriately, right? We talk about that virtue. The same with prudence. Prudence is that sense of, take, of, of knowing what's right and trying to affect change, trying to live. I'm dangerous with these things, sorry. I also, I always feel when I'm wearing one of these as opposed to the lapel, like I'm on a football field, you know, touchdown (laughs) or penalty. (laughs) Prudence to lead us in the right decisions, to help us to make good decisions and follow through on those decisions. Fortitude. It's one thing to know the right thing, another thing to be able to do the right thing. 
I often used to tell people at confirmation when we talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you know, we think of courage, we think of fortitude as being sort of um, going against the grain. But people of fortitude and people of courage are people who are true leaders. I used to, I use this example with young people, you know, like with eighth graders, I would say to them, imagine somebody in the eighth grade is having a party on Saturday night. Their parents are going away and that's why we're going to have this party. We all know what that means, right? Right? Okay. Prudence tells you this isn't going to end well, right? But you see fortitude for the young person, fortitude is the backbone to say, wait a minute, this isn't right. I have a better idea. You see, the man of prudence is not wishy-washy goody-two-shoes. The man of, I'm sorry, the man of fortitude. The man of fortitude is a leader. Somebody who gives a different vision. Who shows that there's a better way. You know, I, I think, I don't think it's going to be a lot of fun having, being silly all night and then spending the rest of the night with your head over a toilet bowl. Right? Let's do this so that let's go watch this basketball game. Let's take part in that activity. And when one person of fortitude stands up, there are about a dozen others who are saying, oh, thank God, I don't have to be the one. Right? I didn't want to do this, but now I have a way out. Man of fortitude sets a different vision. Put that into the marketplace. Put that into business. Put that into the occasions when people are tearing down somebody's reputation or trash talking about somebody, right? It's not being the goody two-shoes. It's coming up with the better vision. I have a better idea. There's another way of doing this, right? There's, there's that virtue. You see, these virtues, they are, in a sense, gifts from God in the sense that they're models, but they're things that we need to work on. We need to nurture. Temperance. Temperance. To know what's going to destroy us. To use God's gifts properly and know what's going to destroy us and get out of the way of those things, right? Those virtues are hard-working virtues, hard works that we do, habits that we do regularly. Now, there were three other virtues that I want to talk about. Faith, hope, and love, the theological virtues. Faith, hope, and charity, it's actually the way it's, it's, it's measured. It, it's translated, rather. Faith, hope, and charity. These are gifts that come from God, Right? These are gifts that God gives to us. I don't all of a sudden make up faith. God has put that in my heart. All right? God, it's God who gives us faith, hope, and charity. What are we called to do? You and I. We're called to receive them. Open hearts, humble hearts. And we're called to nourish them. And I'll come back to that in a minute. We're called to nourish them. So... What are we at? We're recognizing virtue, building virtue, and living virtue. If virtue, as Fred told us in the beginning, the definition in the book and the, that comes from the catechism, if virtue is about becoming like God, right, then recognizing virtue, building virtue, and living virtue is about being like God, and how do we do that? There's only one way to be like God. And that's by hanging with Him. That's by spending time with Him. Getting to know Him, right? There's only one way. It's by getting to know Him, wanting to be like Him, but we have to spend time. 
And fortunately, God has given us the tools, right? First of all, Christ is present right here among us today, isn't he? Christ, the risen Lord, he sends his spirit and he's here among us. He says, whenever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them, right? So wherever there are two or three thousand of us, Christ is in the midst, isn't he not? Right? So Christ is in our midst. One of the things about recognizing virtue is seeing it in one another. One of the great gifts of the men's conference, and I am so impressed by this men's conference. I heard about, it was one of the first things I heard about when I was named last year. One of the first things I heard about. The women's conference and the men's conference. They happened to be taking place right after I was named, before I got here. But it was one of the first things I heard about. This is incredible. This is incredible, this gathering. And that you would give up your Saturday to be here with each other and with the Lord. What an amazing gift. Thank you for that. Recognizing virtue is looking around this room and seeing other guys like yourself who are doing the best that they can to try to develop those acts of virtue, those habits of virtue. It's the way we kind of lift one another up, help one another to see Christ, even helping one another in our struggles to see Christ, in our struggles to be able to overcome them, to encourage each other along the way. Sometimes we'll see some great examples and great, hear great stories of virtue, to, and we'll hear some of those today. We'll see some great examples of it lived out. Thank God for those examples, recognizing virtue. Christ is present among us because we are gathered in his name. As Fred said, in a few minutes, we will have the Eucharistic procession and a moment of adoration. Christ is present here among us in the Eucharist, isn't he? Christ is really and truly present. And he calls us to his open heart. He calls us to himself. We'll celebrate the great gift of the Eucharist at the end of the day and encounter him individually and collectively in the holy sacrifice of the Mass, in that great gift of the Eucharist. We will encounter Jesus Christ. Body, soul, Humanity and divinity, we will encounter Jesus Christ. Doesn't get any more real than that, does it? Doesn't get any more real than that. We can become more like Christ by spending time with him in adoration. There are so many places in this great diocese where there is adoration at all different times. Some perpetual, some particular days during the week. It's, it's amazing, the great love of the Eucharist and its drive toward adoration of our Lord in the Eucharist is one of the great marks of this Diocese of Columbus. I've seen it over and over and over again. I see it in the calendars, I see it when I visit parishes, and I see its effects in the lives of so many people. The love for our Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist here in this diocese, in these 23 counties of central Ohio, is amazing. The Lord calls us to spend some time with him. You want to be like Jesus? Spend some time with him. It doesn't have to be a lot. Just to spend time. Talk to him. Talk to him. Live him in your home. And in all of the sacraments, you who are married, you are living signs of the presence of Christ among us. Christ doesn't give us marriage just as 
a ceremony or vows to one another, but as a sacrament. He wants to give us what we need to be able to live it and to live it well. He gives us this as a sacrament. And then he commissions husbands and wives. Your job is to get each other into heaven. Right? Your job is to get each other into heaven. Sometimes we might say, oh boy, I'm really doing that by, you know, driving... You, you, we might say, you, you might say to your wives, I know, I know, you, you, your patience with me, right? It's going to get you into heaven. <laughs> but you know, that's the job. Marriage is about holiness of life. Holiness of life. And then we've heard some talk today about reconciliation. We've heard about confession. I want to take a moment and just share something with you from Pope Francis about the encounter with Jesus Christ. You know, Pope Francis gives us the joy of the gospel. That was one of his early exhortations in the church. It's one that I go back to over and over and over again. If you read right in the very beginning, in the second chapter, in the second chapter, I'm sorry, the second paragraph, he talks about how the world is kind of covered over by this darkness, by this malaise. But the answer to that malaise is the encounter with Jesus Christ. Paragraph 3, he says, I invite all Christians everywhere at this very moment to a renewed personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Or at least an openness to letting him encounter them. I ask all of you to do this unfailingly each day. No one, No one should think that this invitation is not meant for him or her since no one is excluded from the joy brought by the Lord. The Lord does not disappoint those who take this risk. Whenever we take a step toward Jesus, we come to realize that he is already there, waiting. He's waiting for us with open arms. Now, it's the time to say to Jesus, Lord, I have let myself be deceived. In a thousand ways I have shunned your love. Yet, here I am once more to renew my covenant with you. I need you. Save me once again. Lord, take me once more into your redeeming embrace. How good it is to come back to him whenever we are lost. Let me say this once more. God never tires of forgiving us when we are the ones who tire of seeking his mercy. Christ, who told us to forgive one another 70 times 7, has given us his example. He has forgiven us 70 times 7. Time and time again, he bears us on his shoulders. No one can strip us of the dignity bestowed upon us by this boundless and unfailing love. With the tenderness that never disappoints, but is always capable of restoring our joy, he makes it possible for us to lift up our heads and to start anew. Let us not flee from the resurrection of Jesus. Let us never give up, come what will. May nothing inspire us more than his life, which impels us onward. 
Come to Jesus. That's the key. You know, the truth of the matter is that sometimes the effects of a divided heart bring about consequences and we can't undo history. But you see, God's kingship, God's shepherding, God's self-emptying love becomes a way that we ourselves are saved. Christ calls us to that new beginning. If our hearts have been divided, maybe the damage is done. But the Lord calls us. The Lord calls us to begin anew, to newness of life. Maybe even through his merciful love, he'll perform miracles. It's good to ask for miracles. Indeed, it's good to ask for miracles that matter. Sure, we can ask to improve our golf game. And good luck asking for the Browns or the Bengals. (laughs) A little New York having fun. What can I tell you? (laughs) Although, yes, as a Met fan, I have learned the virtue of long-suffering. But what about miracles that matter? Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Lord, is it possible that I might become an instrument of your healing, even maybe where I may have caused the damage? Lord, help me to be a better man. Lord, help me, or at least, Lord, please heal those I may have hurt. These are real miracles, and God is out there doing those miracles all the way. We may get to see some of those things, and we may not. And on a more positive note, living the virtuous life bears important fruits, doesn't it? Living the virtuous life bears important fruits. You know, there was a study a couple of years ago in, at Notre Dame. Um, Professor Christian Smith did a study of faith, just in general, not just Catholic faith. He comes back to Catholic faith. He did a first study on faith in general. And he looks at all of the different, all the different um, things that determine, all the determinants of one generation passing the faith on to the next. And believe it or not, the number one, the number one determinant was not youth ministry or even schools or the church or the priest. The number one determinant was the faith of the parents and the united faith of the parents, particularly of the fathers. Your witness bears incredible fruits. The studies show that all those other things are very, very important. Catholic schools, youth groups, the the priests and the religious. But only as backup, only as a support to the faith of the parents. Your witness makes a difference. He did a subsequent study. And this was more Catholic. He studied particularly Catholic. What is it that really makes it stick from one generation to another? And it was... Some of the factors included an authenticity, you know, a real connection between what we say about 
Jesus and the Eucharist and how we live our lives. The second thing, well, another thing, I'm not listing them in any particular order. Another thing was talking about our faith. Just plain talking about it. Not preaching, but talking about what we believe. And then, yeah, a little bit of preaching in the sense of standing, you know, being truthful about what is right. The, I'm, I would add that sense of the joy of the gospel. That sense of living the faith and saying that this is something that makes a difference in my life. Now, it's not that everyone who does this has this effect in their family. Nor is it, I mean, we also know of many, many, many stories of great conversion. People who come to discover the Lord in spite of bad family situations. But the best shot that somebody has in the world, the best shot has to do with the faith and the practice of their parents. Why am I telling you this? Not to preach. I'm telling you this because I'm congratulating you. I'm telling you that what you're doing makes a difference. Makes an incredible difference. Even just your being here today is such a a positive sign. This is the leadership of the Gospels. This is true true leadership. The single-hearted, seeking God ourselves and bringing God to others. And, and you know, none of us are perfect. I, I'll be the first to tell you that, right? None of us are perfect. But the fact that we want to do the best that we can and help one another along the way, that makes a great difference. So listen, I conclude by thanking you. Thanks, thanks for your kindness to me. Thanks for your charity, all right? But thanks for being here today. And thanks for being the men of God who you are. The church so desperately needs people like you. Living witnesses of his love. Even if, it's, even if it's because we're struggling along the way. Just doing the best that we can with what we have. We so desperately need you. And we here in Columbus are so incredibly blessed by you. May almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>